0: Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to The Ongoing History of New Music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi there, it's Alan Cross, and for the next few weeks of The Ongoing History of New Music podcast, we're going back to revisit a series we did a little while ago called 100 Weird Things About New Rock. This is a 10-part series, and it explored a lot of topics, with each episode dealing with a particular brand of weirdness sex, the law, drugs, strange recordings, excess, road stories, bad behavior, and more. There's a lot that goes into the music that we don't always hear about, despite what you may hear on the internet. So it's kind of like my job to fill you in. You ready for some weirdness? Okay, but don't say I didn't warn you. It's a fact of human nature that those given the power to make rules that govern the behavior of the rest of us will devote their lives to making and enforcing those rules. And most of the time, this is a good thing. If you murder someone in cold blood and you're caught, you'll face justice. Robbery is illegal. And so is owning a pig in France and calling it Napoleon. Now, I, and I was serious about that. It's against the law to name your pig Napoleon if you live in France. In California, women may not operate an automobile while wearing a housecoat. And in Canada, it's apparently illegal to remove a bandage in public. I mean, who knew? Then there are all the weird lawsuits, like the dry cleaners who were sued for 54 million dollars for losing a pair of pants, or the American politician who filed suit against God for causing natural disasters and inspiring terrorists. And then there are all the tiny legal nuances that either allow cases to proceed or have them dismissed on a technicality. Hello, OJ. The world of rock is not immune to legal foibles. Crimes, felonies, misdemeanors, weird lawsuits, legal charges, jail time, the works. Which got me thinking what are the weirdest intersections of the law and new rock of all time? Thought about it and came up with a list of 10. This is 100 Weird Things About New Rock, Part 7 10 Stories from the Legal Files. This is the ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this show is all about New Rock and the law. I have 10 weird legal issues. Now, musicians, for the most part, are no different from the rest of us. Sometimes they get crazy or stupid and break the law, and in most cases, they end up having to pay for their mistakes. It used to be that these incidents were glossed over and hushed up or underreported in the press. But of course, in the age of the internet, we tend to hear everything right away. Well, most everything. Let's start slow. I have this simple nuisance lawsuit that was filed against U2 by a French fan named Mohamed Fofana. On July the 14th of 1994, Mr. Fofana attended a show on the Zouropa tour at Stade Velodrome in Marseille. He was one of 55,000 people at the gig. Four years later, this would be September of 1997, Mr. Fofana was in court battling U2 with a lawsuit. He claimed that he had lost 75% of his hearing in his left ear and 49% of his hearing in his right ear after security guards roughly dragged him into a restricted area right next to a speaker tower, and the resulting exposure to the loud music damaged his hearing. Now, U2's story was that this guy snuck around a security fence into this restricted area on his own. Therefore, standing too close to the speakers was his own choice, and thus his own fault that he damaged his ears. Now, whatever the truth, the fact of the matter was that the promoter didn't have any warning signs posted. Signs that might have said something like, standing too close to a 100,000 watt speaker system in the middle of a concert may damage your hearing. Nice technicality. This was enough for the judge. Ruling in favor of Mr. Muhammad. He was awarded the equivalent of $34,000. two, a band that now pays very close attention to erecting signs that warn bystanders that standing too close to PA stacks in stadiums without ear protection during a concert can actually damage your hearing. Here's weird law item number two. If you're a musician and your career finally comes to an end, it can kind of mess with your head. I mean, after all, all you've ever known for your entire life is music. And when you can't do that for a living, it can be a little traumatic. Take the case of a fine British band called the House Martins. When they broke up, some of the band went on to form a successful band called the Beautiful South. The guitarist, a guy named Quentin Cook, decided not to go, and instead renamed himself Fat Boy Slim and sold a billion records. But then there's the case of drummer Hugh Whitaker. He was one of the people who got left behind when the House Martins evolved into the Beautiful South and, well, he had decided to leave the band in 1987 anyway. Looking to move on, he invested his life savings in a car dealership. Unfortunately, his partner, a dude named James Hewitt, turned out to be a very bad money manager, and soon Hugh was broke. By 1993, all the money he had earned as a house martin was gone, thanks to his buddy's boneheaded budgeting. That's when he went a little um, crazy. Revenge was in order. First, he poured gasoline into his ex-partner's mailbox, at least twice. When that failed to do any damage or cause any fires, he firebombed the dude's house. And when that didn't have the desired effect, he attacked the guy with an axe. Hacked him up pretty good. Hugh served a six-year sentence for assault. He's now living in Leeds, England, where he plays with several local bands, and he stays away from selling cars. What a good place to be. The House Martins from 1986 featuring axe attacker Hugh Whitaker on drums. Now it's time to speak of urine. The date was October the 31st, 1993. Blind Millen was in Vancouver. They were wrapping up their tour of duty as the opening act for Lenny Kravitz at the Pacific Coliseum. Totally sold out crowd, 13,000 people. Singer Shannon Hoon thought that this was cause for celebration, so he stripped naked for the last three songs and then he took a whiz on the audience. Now, the band tried to make a break for it after their set, but they found that their tour bus had been blocked by police cruisers, and that's when Shannon jumped on top of the roof of the bus and started screaming at the cops at the top of his lungs. He was very stoned, very drunk, or both. It took 15 minutes for the rest of the group to talk him down, and when they got him off the roof, he was arrested and charged with committing an indecent act. They threw him in the drunk tank to sober up, and meanwhile, the promoter spent the next couple of weeks apologizing to those who were peed upon. Which kind of gives a whole new meaning to the title of this song, huh? Blind Melon, featuring singer Shannon Hoon who was arrested for indecent exposure and for peeing on Vancouver. Let's move on to weird issue number four. It's the time when 311 was investigated by the police because the group was a front for the Ku Klux Klan. This was 1993. Rumors began to circulate that 311 was actually code for KKK. Why would that be? Well, K is the 11th letter of the alphabet, and three times K equals... KKK. If you spend any time in prison, you may have noticed some 311 tattoos. The dudes are often very Caucasian, tend to shave their heads and wear swastikas. At one point, 311 t-shirts were banned in high schools around the band's hometown of Omaha, Nebraska because of this rumor. They were investigated by the police. But this is all crap. The real story behind the name relates back to the time when a former guitarist named Jim Watson was caught skinny dipping by the Omaha Police Department. He was charged with indecent exposure, which in Omaha Police Department code is known as a 311. More very weird legal stories coming up, including the time that somebody from a very big British band of the early 1990s was convicted for armed robbery. We'll continue with part seven of 100 Weird Things About New Rock next. This is part seven of a 10-part series called 100 Weird Things About New Rock, and this time we're looking at some strange legal stories. And for story number five, we have to go back to December the 3rd of 1992. The Charlatans UK had just returned from a very successful tour of Japan, and keyboardist Rob Collins was spending a few days catching up with his buddies. Rob drove over to see an old schoolmate named Michael Whitehouse, and the two of them went for a couple of pints. At about 9.15 that night, Michael asked Rob to pull up in front of a liquor store so he could pick up something more to drink. Rob was driving the car that night. And while Rob waited in the car, Michael went into the store. After a few minutes, there was this bang, and Michael comes running back to the car. Rob wasn't really sure what happened, but when Michael said, drive, drive, he, he did. There were witnesses, and someone managed to get Rob's license plate number. And about three hours later, cops showed up, Rob was arrested, and taken into custody. He spent five days in lockup, and during that time, his buddy Michael confessed to armed robbery, and then Rob began to talk. Turns out that Michael had robbed the liquor store just so he could impress his friend the rock star. The original charges were armed robbery and possession of a firearm, and together that meant up to five years in prison. Fortunately, though, Rob had a good lawyer who got the charges reduced to assisting an offender after a crime. Rob was released on £25,000 bail which was posted by his dad, and his passport was confiscated. And when the trial finished up on September the 21st of 1993, Michael was sentenced to four years in prison. And for his part, Rob was given eight months. Rob spent most of his time in a nine-by-nine-foot cell at Redditch Open Prison. He was known as Prisoner RD-1533. And he remembers one occasion in the shower where one fellow inmate kept staring at him while humming the melody to this song, which, uh, is creepy. The Charlton's UK featuring keyboardist and ex-con Rob Collins. By the way, Rob died in a horrible late night car crash on July the 22nd of 1996. Courtney Love is, um, well, I guess you can say that she's known to those of the legal persuasion. And here's an example why. It's the case of Love versus Barber versus Barber versus King. This is weird legal story number six. Courtney used to go out with an ex-executive of Geffen Records named Jim Barber. Jim also acted as her manager. Jim had an ex-wife named Leslie, and Leslie did not like Courtney. On December the 15th of 2000, a lawsuit was filed in Los Angeles Superior Court by a lawyer named Martin Singer, alleging that Leslie Barber was, quote, on a mission to destroy Courtney Love. The suit alleges a 20-month stalking campaign, which began with the following threat, you're a bitch and I'm going to get you. Allegedly, Leslie's plans to get Courtney included an intent to plant cocaine at Courtney's house and then to presumably tip off the police. There were various incidents of harassment and trespassing, and there was an attempt to run down Courtney with a late model Volvo. This is one of the better parts of the story. Back in 2000, Courtney was still doing a lot of acting. She had been signed to appear in a John Carpenter movie called Ghosts of Mars, but then she had to drop out. The story was that she had injured her ankle while working out in the gym. But when this lawsuit was made public, the story changed. It alleges that on June 4, 2000, outside of Courtney's LA home, Leslie Barber deliberately drove her car, the aforementioned late model Volvo, at Courtney with the intent to cause grievous bodily harm. Courtney was able to get out of the way, but the car apparently ran over her foot, causing the injury, necessitating her withdrawal from the John Carpenter film. The lawsuit stated that due to the outrageous behavior of Barber, Love has endured highly unpleasant mental reactions such as fright, sleepless nights, embarrassment, anger, chagrin, chagrin, disappointment, and or worry. The suit asked for $1 million for the harassment claims and an additional $500,000 for lost income from the movie. The suit was for assault, battery, trespass to land, conversion, intentional infliction of emotional distress, invasion of privacy, civil conspiracy, prima facie tort, and harassment. Now, this suit between Courtney and Leslie was later settled, but that was not the end of it. In October of 2003, cops were called to Jim Barber's house because someone was trying to break in, and they found Courtney, who was very stoned on OxyContin, trying to break a window and trying to get into the house. Barbara didn't press charges, but Courtney was arrested on drug charges. A judge later ordered her into rehab. Courtney and Jim broke up, but uh, we're still not done. On the morning of April the 25th, 2004, Courtney showed up at Jim's house to find a woman named Kristen King sitting on the couch. Kristen sang for an L.A. band called King, and she hung around with hold guitarist Eric Erlinson. Now, Courtney had never met Kristen before, but seeing that she had been sleeping on her ex-boyfriend's couch... While well, she just assumed the worst. And Courtney, being Courtney, pulled Kristen's hair, scratched her arms, backhanded her in the face, breaking a tooth, tweaked her breasts, leaving some bruises, threw a lit candle at her, and finally cracked Kristen on the head with a bottle of liquor. Then Courtney left, allegedly with his parting shot. Who will believe you? I'll say you were never here. Who will be your witness? But Kristen would not be cowed. She called the police, and the charge was assault with a deadly weapon. I guess that's the liquor bottle. In the end, Courtney paid a $1,000 fine, $2,750 in restitution to Kristen, and sentenced to three years probation complete with random drug tests, a year of anger management, and 100 hours of community service. But Ms. King was not satisfied. And on September the 20th of 2005, she had her lawyer file a civil suit against Courtney, and the whole thing went to trial a year later. And then, Monday, December the 11th, a judge threw the whole thing out. Don't know why, but it just disappeared. So here's a lesson, kids. Don't date Courtney or anyone who might have dated Courtney in the past. It's just not worth it. Now. Hole featuring the very scary Courtney Love. She may act crazy, but she has all that money from her dead husband to hire the world's best lawyers. Item number seven also has to do with a beating. Jack White of the White Stripes. It was a Saturday night in Detroit, December the 13th, 2003. Jack was helping to celebrate the CD release of a local band called Blanche at a club called Magic Stick. The story is that a guy named Jason Stolsteimer was minding his own business when Jack suddenly walked up to him and began yelling and screaming. When Jason refused to take the bait, refused to get involved, Jack spit in his face and began punching Jason in the face. When Jason hit the floor, Jack continued to pound him. It took several people in the crowd to pull Jack away from this guy. A legal complaint was made. Jack then filed a counter complaint saying that he simply fought back in self-defense after he was thrown to the floor and was choked This was all very odd, since Jack had worked very hard at helping Jason's band, the Von Bondis, get a record deal. But apparently, though, there was some kind of weird, quiet feud going on. Jack initially pleaded not guilty, but later changed that to guilty to a charge of misdemeanor assault and battery at a trial on March the 9th of 2004. He got a $500 fine, $200 in court costs, and a year of anger management. Now, we're still not sure why Jack laid the beating on Jason, especially since They hadn't talked for two years leading up to the incident. Maybe it had something to do with the harshness the Von Bondys had directed towards the White Stripes in the press. I can give you this quote from Jack, though. The entire event was completely exploited by him, his band, and his managers and legal professionals. The two of us did have an argument, and I did spit at him. But what he doesn't say is how he then grabbed me to pull me down and pull out a good deal of my hair. My retaliation was to hit him, to get him off me, then he landed on my hand, which became cut on the broken glass underneath it. The whole thing lasted less than ten seconds. Now here's Jack talking about the dramatic photo that appeared in the music press after this beatdown. The photo, this photo of Jason, was sent to the British magazine NME the next morning, with the photo credit being that of Von Bondi's manager Rick Kenny. Jason would not allow the dried blood from his bloody nose wash from his face before taking the photo. Take a look at it again. It's a black eye once you wash off the dried blood. His face isn't full of cuts. The permanent damage that he claims to have done to his eye is also false. Having toured extensively with the man, I know that he would refuse to drive the touring van because as a teenager, Jason left a contact lens in his eye for over a year. Then he tried to pull it out. He tore his eye in doing so. The same eye he tried to blame me for permanently damaging so funny when the aroma of money and fame is in the air. Old friends will quickly step on your face to get it. So let's just leave it at that then. And believe it or not, you may know of the Von Bondys, by the way. Ever watched the Dennis Leary show Rescue Me? A Von Bondy song became the theme. The Von Bondies, featuring Jack White's ex-friend, Jason Stolsteimer. I have one more story about a brawl between rival bands, and this time it's Johnny Ramone that got hurt. It was August 1983. The Ramones got into a brawl with Seth Macklin of a group called Sub-Zero Construction in the street in front of Johnny's apartment in the East Village of New York City. It was four in the morning. Johnny remembers seeing a drunk girl and offering her some help. The next thing he knew, he was in the hospital, His head all bandaged up because he was recovering from brain surgery. Apparently, there was a big fight. Johnny hit the pavement and got kicked in the head. He was rushed to hospital with a fractured skull. Meanwhile, Seth was arrested and charged. Now, Johnny recovered, but there were long-term implications. After this incident, Johnny didn't trust doctors as much and tended to stay away from them as much as he possibly could. And when he started suffering some abdominal pain about 15 years later, he didn't think much of it. He didn't seek treatment right away. Well, turns out that abdominal pain was actually prostate cancer, aggressive prostate cancer. It spread throughout his body, chemo didn't help, and Johnny died on September the 15th of 2004. Had he not been beaten up in the summer of 1983 and still trusted doctors, who knows? Beat on the brat, beat on the brat, beat on the brat with a baseball bat, oh yeah. The Ramones with the late Johnny Ramone. Two more weird legal stories before we're done. Air rage and jail time for stolen towels. Next. Welcome back to 100 Weird Things About New Rock. This is part seven, which focuses on strange legal situations that we've encountered over the decades. Now, this is a good one. It's the infamous air rage conviction against former Stone Roses singer Ian Brown. On February the 13th, 1998, he boarded British Airways Flight 1611 in Paris, which was bound for his hometown of Manchester. It's a short flight, but it was enough for things to go very wrong between Ian and a flight attendant named Christine Cooper. Now, her story is that she was offering drinks and duty-free to passengers when she thought that Ian had gestured at her. Turns out he wasn't. He was just putting something in his pocket. Christine then says she realized her mistake and offered an apology with sort of an open-handed wave at Ian. At that point, she says that Ian yelled at her, Hey, you! And told her not to wave at him or he'd chop her hands off. Now she apologized, but then she says the abuse from Ian kept on coming. Captain Drake, who was piloting the aircraft, came out of the cockpit to see what was going on, and Ian allegedly repeated his threats to the captain. And later, or so the story goes, Ian left his seat and banged on the cockpit door for 20 or 30 seconds as the plane descended into Manchester. When the plane landed, Ian was arrested and charged with air rage. When the whole thing went to court in October of 1998, Ian insisted that the airline story was not how things went, and that any remarks he made were strictly made as a joke. And he also denied banging on the cockpit door. But his defense fell on deaf ears. The sentence? The Well, on October 23, 1998, he was sentenced to four months at the notorious Strangeways Prison. To this day, though, Ian and his friends and supporters maintain that he was set up as an example and did not deserve to be sent to jail. Ian later claimed that he was a victim of racism. Okay, here's how he explains that. "'I was flying back with four black friends, two Asians and a couple of white kids, and our stewardess was not best pleased. She was obviously used to white middle-class kids with suits and ties. Being teetotal, I had nothing to drink, but when she brought round the duty-free, she waved her hand dismissively, which was rude, so I challenged her. She apologized, and I said flippantly, do it again and I'll chop it off. There was a genuine air rage incident in Spain before my court date, which put the subject in the news. They wanted to make an example of me. I was a free advertisement for British Airways, which they needed to show were enforcing the new laws. Well... Believe what you like, I guess. Have you seen the The Stone Roses, featuring singer and convicted air rager Ian Brown. Okay, one more, and it has to do with some towels. June 11th, 1977, Joe Strummer and Topper Heden of the Clash were in Newcastle, but then the very next night they were thrown in jail on robbery charges. Joe and Topper were accused of stealing a pillowcase and some towels from a Holiday Inn. They were supposed to have appeared in court to answer the charges back in May of 77, but they decided not to show up. I mean, pillowcase and some towels. Well, judges hate it when you do things like that. I mean, not show up in court. In the end, they were fined 100 (laughs) pounds. How badass is that? I mean, The Clash. They were arrested for stealing a pillowcase. The in the All right, we're 70% done of our look at the weirdest things in the history of new rock and alternative music. And again, you know, weird is in the mind of the beholder, but I think you'll agree that we've run into some serious strangeness over the last seven shows. But you know what we haven't talked about much yet? Sex. Oh, there's, there's got to be some weird sex stories, right? Oh, yes, there is. And we'll go through ten of the best on the next show. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross.